This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chutka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Imagine a world where you could order a test which will tell you if a medication you are about to prescribe is likely to be effective or ineffective. A test which will let you know if that medication is likely to be well tolerated or produce an adverse effect. Well, that world currently exists and is known as pharmacogenomics. At some point in time, pharmacogenomic testing will dramatically change how we practice medicine. Instead of trial and error prescribing, we'll be practicing precision medicine, personalizing our therapy with optimal drug prescribing. And this should result in maximizing efficiency as we reduce polypharmacy, allowing our prescribing to be more cost-effective, with better patient outcomes and improved patient safety. So today we're going to discuss pharmacogenomic testing. Our guest today is Dr. Eric Matei, a pharmacogenomics pharmacist with the Center for Individualized Medicine at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Eric has been instrumental in the implementation of a pharmacogenomics consult service here at Mayo. Eric, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Well, for our listeners who may not be all that familiar with pharmacogenomics, why don't you describe what pharmacogenomics actually is? So pharmacogenomics has to do with the variability in our gene pool that can affect how one will respond to medications. So when I talk about medication response, it could be therapeutic response or adverse drug reaction. Um, So it is that variability in the genetic makeup that can affect either efficacy or potential adverse reactions um, that we could potentially then then stop or decrease. So how can pharmacogenomics help us clinicians actually take better care of our patients? I think pharmacogenomics should be considered as an additional tool within a clinician's toolbox that can be utilized in sometimes selecting the right medications. It can also be utilized by clinicians, again, as a tool to decrease adverse drug reactions. Now, I'll give you an example. Mm -hmm. You have a patient who um, will come into your clinic and request for, let's say, an antidepressant to help them with their mood. Um, And this patient may also tell you that um, they might have tried other medications to manage their mood in the past and did have a problem with finding the right medication. Now... In such a scenario, you can then say, well, if the patient has pharmacogenomic testing done, can pharmacogenomics help decrease the try and error and help increase the chances of selecting the appropriate medication? So this is where you can, you know, clinicians can find the utility of pharmacogenomic Mm -hmm. um, testing quite helpful. Um, As we all know, it sometimes takes about four weeks for some of these antidepressants to get on board in terms of being effective. So for a patient who can have pharmacogenomic testing done, well, that may help you select the right medication um, and then decrease the chances of the patient, you know, calling you four weeks down the line to say that medication he gave me is not helping me. Sure. And we're probably already using some of the effects of pharmacogenomics when we ask the patient, have you taken an antidepressant in the past and what has worked for you? Right. Or have there been any family members who have been on an antidepressant and successfully treated. That is absolutely true. 
um, without even knowing that that is pharmacogenomics that you're practicing, basically utilizing the patient's um, genetic or history, family history, in selecting the appropriate medications. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are scenarios where a patient will come in and say, my mother did try, let's say, citalopram to help me her with her depression. And for some reason, it worked very well. Mm-hmm. And sometimes cl- clinicians will say, you know what? I was actually going to try on a different medication. However, since your mom, your sister, other people in your family have done well on that medication, that will be the first choice. And in some cases, um, that might be the best choice for the patient. Mm -hmm. So antidepressants are often one class of drugs that we use pharmacogenomic information. Mm -hmm. Uh, What are some other examples of either classes of drugs or specific medications where this may be useful? So what comes to mind um, is pain. I mean, if we think about the um, opioid epidemic that we currently have in our country, um, could pharmacogenomics help? If you think about medications such as the opioids, so we think about uh, tramadol um, and codeine, um, there's a classic case where a mother who was an ultra-rapid metabolizer for one of the genes called CYP2D6 was breastfeeding um, and was actually taking codeine Mm -hmm. and and unfortunately the baby did get the active ingredient um, morphine and had a problem breathing and died Mm. Um, now back then pharmacogenomic testing was not prominent in in the practice Um, and so there this is a case where if we had utilized or if we had more information of how to utilize pharmacogenomics maybe would have prevented that issue from occurring. So pain medications, um, especially with tramadol and codeine, um, is one area where we can utilize pharmacogenomics. Another area is when we think about statins, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Simvastatin is a very common medication that we utilize in helping patients who have high cholesterol. There's a gene associated with that, the um, SLCO1B1 gene. And for some people, if they have a certain, what we'll say, increased risks, whereby they have a decreased ability of clearing um, of simvastatin out of their system, they may have a problem with muscle pain. So for those, some patients, and again, I've had patients who will be at increased risk and still tolerate the medication. So that is another area where pharmacogenomics can be of help. Other areas will be, um, we see sometimes in oncology. We see sometimes in cardiology, whereby we're thinking about some of the beta blockers, specifically metoprolol, um, which is also metabolized by CYP2D6. So the list can go on, um, just to mention a few. We were talking before we went on the air about um, proton pump inhibitors, in that uh, I tried taking both an antacid and ranitidine for some acid reflux, which worked quite well. Uh, When I tried a proton pump inhibitor, it was absolutely... No effect. Right. I, I think this is classic because I think we share a common um, story here. And, and like I was telling you before we got on air, there was a time when I also had major GI mm-hmm. pain. I took a proton pump inhibitor, omeprazole, nothing happened. Yeah. Um, uh, I felt like I was taking M&Ms, actually. <laughs> so what's uh, happening there? Well, what could be happening here is that, um, and I did have pharmacogenomic testing done and come to find out that I'm a rapid to ultra-rapid metabolizer of a gene called CYP2C19. Okay. And if you think about omeprazole, which is cleared by, by this gene, CYP2C19, what could be happening here is that there is an increased clearance of omeprazole to the point where 
um, what is expected, meaning blocking the proton pump from releasing the acidity, that action is not really taking place mm-hmm. as quickly as we want it to be. So we're getting rid of it before it has a chance to have any effect. Right, right. So the serum concentration therapeutic window um, sometimes cannot be achieved. Interesting. All right. How do our genes mm-hmm. actually mm-hmm. affect how our medications work? So it's very specific. Um, and this is where we cannot generalize um, because it is not every medication that is activated or deactivated by a gene. Okay. So I'll give you two examples. One example, let's say gabapentin, which we all know for some patients when they take may have pediaedema, where they come in, they complain about leg pain, it's swelling. Some patients have come in to say, can I have pharmacogenomics help me determine if it is my genes that is contributing to this adverse reaction that I'm experiencing? The problem here is that because gabapentin is not activated or has a drug gene interaction, we cannot use pharmacogenomics to explain that. Mm-hmm. So it is usually when there is a drug gene relationship, then we can figure out, is the medication active? Is the medication inactive? It is, if it is active, we're usually worried about, is the gene um, a poor status? Mm-hmm. Or is it a rapid status, metabolizer in this case? If it is active, we are usually worried about if you're a rapid metabolizer, clearing it too quickly. If you're a poor metabolizer, having too much of the drug and causing an issue with adverse drug reaction. The opposite is true, whereby if you think about an inactive medication, and a good example of that, I'll go back to the codeine. If the patient is a poor metabolizer, then the probability of them converting the codeine to morphine, meaning the CYP2D6 that is in the human body here, will not be able to convert that to the morphine. And okay. so the pain um, response will still be at a point zero when you, when you ask them, have you improved in your pain? I say, no, I mean, pain scale will be at a 10. Okay. So this is how our genes, um, the gene-drug relationship, we have to be quite careful. Now, we can take this to another point where we're thinking about hypersensitivity. So if we think about um, a medication such as um, allopurinol, which we we usually use for the management of gout. Patients who have a certain gene, the HLA B5801 gene, if those patients have a positive um, gene, then they have a higher incident of Sivin-Johnson syndrome, and nobody wants that, especially in certain populations, Mm -hmm. um, Asians, to be specific. It seems like uh, psychiatry mm-hmm. was kind of the first subspecialty group to really use pharmacogenomic testing a lot. Right. Uh, what benefits have they realized as a result of this? I, I, going back to the initial conversation that we had when we started the, the pod, um, podcast, I think the reason why psychiatry was the first to jump on was most of the medications usually take quite a long time mm-hmm. for them to see the therapeutic benefit. So pharmacogenomics became another tool that it could utilize. Now, let's step back to the STAR-D trial, whereby um, they selected specific medications, um, drug one, if the patient did not do well, then they added a second medication, a third medication, and a fourth medication to see if patients would do better with their depression as more medications were added. What they found out there was that when more medications were added, some patients had a higher um, adverse drug response, right? So going back to psychiatry, could they 
then say, can we utilize pharmacogenomics to select the right medication instead of this addition whereby we ended up having some patients have more adverse drug reactions and decrease adherence because we're giving them so many medications. Mm -hmm. What has um, psychiatry benefited or seen from um, the utility of pharmacogenomics? I think the, the findings are not very clear, um, meaning that some of the studies are showing that there may be something else apart from just pharmacogenomics that is contributing to why some patients are not responding to these medications. Mm -hmm. But again, you can still consider utilizing pharmacogenomics to decrease the, the try and error. Okay. So are these tests being used by primary care clinicians? Uh, do you see many of our colleagues uh, ordering pharmacogenomic tests? Yes, yes. Um, primary care medicine here at Mayo Clinic, we have physician leaders. Um, I can think of one, Dr. Mm -hmm. Dupra, who mm -hmm. has been very engaged in, um, as a champion here at Mayo Clinic. Now, usually when I see physicians, especially at primary care um, providers ordering pharmacogenomics, it is when patients are on um, uh, polypharmacy. Mm -hmm. They're taking quite a number of medications. They're reporting lack of therapeutic response. And so the clinicians will say, can pharmacogenomics help me here? Um, and so, yes, our clinicians are utilizing that. Now, the second point is Mayo Clinic just completed the right um, 10K um, pilot, whereby um, 10,000 patients were taken from our biobank. These patients have pharmacogenomic results, 13 genes incorporated into our medical data. And so we have preemptive testing available that our drug gene rules are going to be fired moving forward. So our primary care providers um, have, are aware of the results being in the medical record, and we're going to be studying that moving forward. Um, now, one thing that I also want to add here is that, especially at Mayo Clinic, we do have pharmacists um, who can actually help if there is any drug gene um, interactions that clinicians need further assistance with. And that was my next question. When okay. we get this data back, are we going to be able to understand it, or are we going to have to call you or uh, one of your colleagues to interpret it? From my experience, once clinicians um, become aware and exposed to a specific drug gene um, of interest, so for instance, we talked about PPI. Um, Dr. Absda here, who um, did a study of Pete's patients who were having issues with their GERD, after a few consults, he was like, oh, I understand that if the patient is an ultra-rapid metabolizer, I need to increase the dose. Mm -hmm. um, if the patient is a normal metabolizer, I don't need to take any action. So there is, there's a quick learning curve here where most clinicians um, do become comfortable after a few e-consults. Um, usually when the patient is, again, on a polypharmacy, lots of medication, I think this is where clinicians will usually refer to a pharmacist for further assistance. Okay. So there is a learning curve, but we're right. probably trainable. Yes. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I know when these first came out, uh, the cost was right. really prohibitive. Right. But that's really come down, hasn't it? It has. So when I started with the pharmacogenomic clinic here at Mayo Clinic, um, the cost of Nigene panel was about $3,000. Right. I remember that. Yeah, now it's down to about $300. Um, and so for most patients, and not for all, but for most patients, um, the issue of insurance coverage, when they compare 
the number of sick days that they may have to take because of an issue with medications. Some patients are saying, I just want to pay out of pocket for this because it's at a point where I think I can afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, some insurance companies will say, well, we'll cover for a specific gene. Um, so that is a discussion where if a patient is really interested, you can always talk to the insurance company to see if they're covering it. Um, United Health recently just came out supporting uh, pharmacogenomic testing for specific genes. And so, again, if you have a patient who has United Health as a health benefits plan, something to check into. Mm-hmm. And I suspect with more experience with pharmacogenomic testing, uh, the insurance companies will realize that may actually be less costly to pay for the test right. than to pay for multiple visits and multiple medications that aren't useful. That is absolutely right. Now, there are some direct-to-consumer tests out there. Right. How do they differ from the ones that we order? So the, the one major point to remember here is that if a patient has um, um, the, these consumer mm-hmm. testing, the FDA has has a statement that say that for those tests to be used clinically for these pharmacogenomic results, they have to be retested, usually in a clinical lab, um, a clear approved lab before physicians and clinicians can utilize that information. So the way I see these tests, the, the um, direct-to-consumer tests, the way I see them is that it's a conversation starter. If a patient has a testing done and let's say there are any medications listed on there or there is a specific genes that are coming back as negative or positive or poor or ultra rapid, it is a way for that patient to then have a conversation with their clinicians mm-hmm. to say, how do I get this confirmed? That way I can utilize it clinically. Okay. Is the data any different? Are we getting uh, more extensive data on our tests than they are? Some of the labs may provide, the direct-to-consumer labs may provide what they think is um, common in the population, Mm -hmm. the the genes as well as the variants that are very common in the population. Um, However, if I compare um, one of the labs to what Mayo Clinic lab was reporting for a gene, the CYP2D6, we had more variants, meaning that we were not, the probability of us missing a gene of question is less likely compared to some of the um, direct-to-consumer testing that is out there. Okay, so a greater depth of knowledge, or yes, greater depth of data that yes. we get back. Yes. Okay. Well, sometimes this information, mm-hmm. if it goes in the patient's record, uh, can suggest they may have certain problems with insurance. Is that affecting their insurance rates, or can it affect insurance rates? No, there is actually a law, GINA which actually um, do protect the patient against this for, for um, health purposes. They cannot be discriminated against um, based on the information that is in the medical record. Okay. Well, what do you see the future of pharmacogenomics? Where do you see it going? I think we've just started um, the journey of pharmacogenomics, although Many, um, such as Dr. Wichenbaum, Dr. Li Wang, have been in this space for many, many, many years. Mm-hmm. I think as we continue to explore the data and understand um, what we think the phenotypic results can do clinically, we've just started. And so my recommendation is that we as clinicians need to continue to stay engaged um, and, and utilize the latest tool, knowing that what we know clinically 
in addition to the pharmacogenomic results, ultimately will help our patients. Okay. Well, let's finish up by asking you to summarize what you feel are the important points regarding pharmacogenomic testing. So the information that I would like to share has to do with what I usually tell patients, which is if you are doing well on a specific medication, irrespective of what the pharmacogenomic testing may say, you may want to continue that drug. Um, if, if you're a patient um, who's had pharmacogenomic testing done, please share that information with your clinicians um, because there's usually more to just what the phenotypic result may be. So as clinicians, I'll say be receptive to what um, patients may bring into you for general discussion. Um, and then third is if you find a variant of significance in a specific patient, if possible, test their siblings. Um, they could be taking the same medication and having the same issues. That way we can start thinking about population health in this way. Mm-hmm. Well, we've been discussing pharmacogenomics with Dr. Eric Matei, pharmacogenomics expert at the Mayo Clinic. Eric, thanks for stopping by today. It's been fascinating. Thanks for having me. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please subscribe. Stay healthy and see you next week.